Okay, I was going to give our reading this morning, which is from uh, Romans 8, verses 12 to 17. So I'll look at James to make sure that's what you have prepared on. Because imagine if it wasn't. Happy, really? That would be, yeah. No, anyway, good. We've got a thumbs up. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Do you know what James up now? It's great, he's at university, but still very much one of us, been part of this church for many years through the children's groups and the youth group and uh, it's just great this is his second time uh, preaching formally here so it's great to have him back let's pray for you and then um, thank you. father God, we thank you for james and uh, we thank you for his faithfulness lord we thank you for his his walk lord his faithful walk with you so come now holy spirit will you fill him will you give him your peace lord will you anoint him to bring uh, your word to us lord and give us those open hearts and minds to receive and hear what it is you have for us, for us this morning. So lead now we pray, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Good morning, Waypoint. That was, that was pretty good. Let's try that again. Good morning, Waypoint. Hey, fantastic. And uh, very warm welcome to all of you who might be in the North Building, anyone who's watching online. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. Um, I'm a bit odd. I quite enjoy preaching, the whole process um, of being able to, um, yeah, write a sermon and then deliver it is something that I quite enjoy. So as I say, it's a privilege to be back here this morning. Thank you for having me a second time. Um, similar to, to Chris Snook, who was praying, um, or preaching, sorry, a few weeks ago, um, I feel a bit like a visitor here. There's a lot of faces that I don't recognize, but I've very much kind of grown up in this church. Um, yeah, although at the moment I am studying at the University of Bristol. I've been there for the last two and a half years. And um, yeah, that's partly why some of you might not recognize me. Um, but yeah, feel free to grab me after the service um, if you'd like to chat about anything that's been said today. Um, if you want to pray together, that would be great as well. I'll stick around for a little bit. Um, so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to keep it open. We're going to be looking quite a bit at this passage today. Um, and just to bring you up to speed with where we're at at the moment, we've been doing this series called Set Apart. Um, two weeks ago, Jim was preaching on Romans 7, and it was to do with this idea of sin being an entity, something that wages war inside of us, that we, um, as, as Christians, we, we face this battle between sin and the spirit, waging war inside of us, trying the sin trying to make us do bad things, and the spirit trying to lead us into um, producing the fruits of the spirit. And he gave us two clear actions based on this. The first was dependence, and the second was repentance. Dependence on the Holy Spirit and repentance from all the bad things we do. 
Then last week we had Richard um, preaching on the, um, the victory that Christ has over sin, and that's a lot of Romans 8. Romans 8 is arguably the most pivotal passage in all of Scripture as Paul lays down some of the really clear doctrines and foundations of um, theology. And, um, but not only that, it's actually this glorious kind of crescendo of praise to God the Father. It's a really wonderful passage. And um, yeah, so Jim, um, sorry, Richard was preaching on that last week, and he gave us five practical suggestions. And before we go any further, I want to see how many people might remember what was said last week. So it's five B, B something, B something. So just shout them out as you can think of them from last week. Hey, fantastic. We've got intentional, prayerful, obedient, humble, and continual. Amazing. We're doing really, really well. Okay. This week, I want to start with an illustration. It's a little bit of a, a, a bleak illustration, but bear with me. So I want you to imagine that you're a slave in first century Rome and you're at a slave market, and you're being, get, basically getting ready to be sold. You're standing in a line, there's lots of slaves there, and you're stark naked. It's a very shameful experience. And there's a, um, an auctioneer who calls out your name, and, uh, and your heart sinks as the first person who bids for you is a notoriously vicious slave master. Going once, going twice, your heart sinks. But before he says gone, someone else places a bid for you, someone you don't recognize. The vicious slave master kind of scowls and places a slightly higher bid for you. And they go back and forth a little bit, each one placing a higher bid than the other, until eventually the vicious slave master has nothing left to give. He can't offer anything more. Going once, going twice, sold. The vicious slave master walks away, and the other person who's just bought you rushes over. He's got a cloak. He puts the cloak around you, takes you under his arm, and he takes you home. Now, your experience of other slave masters is that they put you immediately to work, but this man, he doesn't do that. He sits you down at the table, places hot food in front of you. He gets on his knees, and he washes your feet. What an odd thing to do. He sits down, and he kind of listens to your story, and after a little while, he says, stop. You're not a slave anymore. You're a son. I want you to be my son. And this is the experience that we have as Christians, that we were once slaves, but called now, chosen to be sons. One of the... Um, ways that we can kind of understand scriptures by just spending time meditating on it. And before I, or as I started kind of preparing for this, as I first read the passage, I went to my pastor in Bristol and I kind of asked to sit down and just have some advice and suggestions. And the first thing he suggested, partly because this is Romans 8, as we've talked about, this is the most pivotal passage potentially in all of scripture. And he said, memorize Romans 8. And so I spent weeks just meditating on Romans 8, memorizing it trying to understand it. It's a glorious passage. And one of the things that really stood out to me was my own bias for how I view God and how I view myself in relationship to God. My bias, and I'm not sure how many of you relate, will relate to this, but my bias is to think of God as a sovereign ruler. He is the judge over all creation, and I am a subject to him. 
And this is true, don't get me wrong. But as I meditate on this passage, I'm like, I'm not just a subject to God, and he's not just a sovereign ruler, although those things are true, but he is an intimate father, and I am a son, I am a child of God. I wonder what your natural disposition is, what your kind of go-to thought is. How do you view yourself in relationship, to, in relationship to God? Do you view yourself as a subject to him, a bit like me? Is that your natural view? Or is your natural view to think of God as your, your intimate and close father? For some, sonship might be hard to imagine, and we might not resonate with it, particularly because of our own relationships with our own fathers. And it can be really hard, I think, sometimes to think of God as that close and intimate and perfect father when we have a difficult relationship with our own father. J.R.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God, and there was a beautiful um, chapter in it about adoption to sonship. And he says this, the thought of our maker becoming our perfect parent, faithful in love, generous and thoughtful, he's interested in all we do, respecting our individuality, skillful in training us, wise in guiding us, always available, helping to find ourselves in maturity, integrity, and uprightness. This thought of our maker becoming our perfect parent is a thought that can have meaning for every single one of us, whether we come by it saying, I had a wonderful father and God is like that, only more so, or potentially by saying, my father disappointed me, here, 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 and here, but God, praise his name, is so much greater than that. So what is your, your natural view of God? I'm going to spend some time looking at the passage now. Um, can we have the um, first bit of the passage up, if that's all right? Fantastic. So, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the therefore is kind of, it's in, in relation to all this, in relation to what he's just been talking about, this is what we need to do. We have an obligation. And we don't necessarily like that word sometimes. It can be quite a difficult word to uh, stomach. We have an obligation. Really? An obligation? But it's interesting that Paul doesn't actually say what the obligation is, but he starts by saying what the obligation isn't. It isn't to the flesh to live according to it. And I think the insinuation there is that previously we did have some kind of obligation to the flesh, but no longer. It's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul talks a lot about this word flesh, particularly in Romans 8. And what does it actually mean? Well, it's a Greek word, sarx, S-A-R-X. And uh, one um, Greek-English dictionary put it this way. The physical body, as a functioning entity, particularly in, in Paul's thought, all parts of the body, the physicality, constitute as a totality known as flesh, which is dominated by sin to such a degree that wherever flesh is, all forms of sin are likewise present, and no good thing can live. It's a really bleak view of this word flesh, this physicality. But it makes sense of what Jim was preaching on two weeks ago, and it makes sense of what Jesus meant when he said, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. In and of our flesh on its own, sin dominates. So we need to put that sin to death. How we live is of great importance. 
So just to summarize that bit, we have no obligation to live dominated by sin anymore, but if we put that old life to death, or sorry, we put that old, yeah, that old life to death, we will live. And it's not just live, you know, as we do now, it's life in all its fullness, as um, it says in John 10, 10. So if we have the next bit up now, 14 to 15, for those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. So the previous bit was kind of what we do, this is how we do it. We do it by being led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. I wonder, what do you think it looks like to actually be led by the Spirit of God? And maybe you're asking the question this morning, am I led by the Spirit of God? I want to encourage you, that's a good question to ask. It's a good question to spend some time meditating on. But it's like this, it's like having your allegiance to God. I think it's in about a week's time, that we'll, we'll, there's the coronation. We have, uh, we'll have an opportunity to essentially declare our allegiance um, to the king of the UK, King Charles. But this morning, every single person in this room has the opportunity, either to the, for the first time, to declare their allegiance to the king of kings, or maybe for the hundredth time, to once again declare your allegiance to the King of Kings. How do we do it? We do it by declaring our allegiance to God, by being led by the Spirit. And it is by this Spirit that we are able to pray, Abba, Father. It gives us great confidence to be led by the Spirit. That is one of the ways that we are able to do this, by being led by the Spirit, and that gives us confidence, and in that confidence, everything else kind of flows. We do not live in fear again. Why not? Because even death has been conquered. There's no need to live in fear. So I'm just going to summarize this again. Being led by the Spirit is the proof of our adoption to sonship and gives us great confidence in the face of death. And it is the same Spirit that allows us to cry, Abba, Father. And as a good father would, he hears us. I'll have the last section now. So the Spirit himself testifies that with our spirit that we are God's children. Elsewhere in one of Paul's letters, he talks about the Holy Spirit being like a guarantee. He is like the signature on your adoption papers, written in the blood of Christ. The Spirit himself is the testimony with our spirit that we are God's children. This is why we do it, because we are God's children. And then verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. We'll come back to that last bit, but if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. Is there anything greater than that? To be an heir of God, and to join Christ as a co-heir? That's wonderful. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That's the hard bit. What does he mean when he says share in his sufferings? I think it's an interesting question. I ask myself this, and I don't want to pretend that I know this for 100% sure, but my understanding of his sufferings is not necessarily the physical sufferings of, of, of being crucified on the cross, although it might be for some. But my understanding of this is the suffering that comes with putting sin to death. It hurts to put sin to death. People mock you, people scorn you when you put sin to death. When you say no to gossiping, when you say no to having that one extra drink that would tip you over the edge. It hurts because people will ridicule you for it. 
It might even hurt because in that moment, it's something you really want to do. And so there's an element of suffering that comes with putting sin to death. We share in Christ's sufferings who perfectly put all sin to death. And then we share in his glory. So that's kind of just going through the passages, and I want to draw out a few application points now. And I'll just go once again through those three main points. What we do, how we do it, and why we do it. So what do we do? We live according to the Spirit, we live led by the Spirit, and we live producing the fruits of the Spirit. The Roman custom for adoption was that um, a person, whether it be a child or an adult, um, actually often wasn't a child, but this this word adoption that's actually only used five times in the Bible, um, the social context behind this was that um, a ruler or an emperor would um, have someone join their family, that person would get full legal um, status as a child of that person, of that emperor or that powerful person. Not only would they get that full legal status, that full inheritance, but they would have to, it was an absolute requirement, they cut any ties with their old family and their old selves. And similarly, we now have no obligation to our flesh. So what do we do? We cut ties with our old self. This might practically mean that we um, have to cut ties with a damaging friendship, It might mean that we have to cut ties with things that we know are actually leading us down the wrong path. I can bring up some of those things, but what I'm going to do, and I thought it was was wonderful earlier that um, Andy brought us the fruits of the Spirit. Um, I'd love to talk talk more about that, but just earlier in that passage, the fruits or the works of the flesh are written out. So I'm going to read some of these to you, and I doubt that many of them will, will stand out, but there'll definitely be at least one or two for every single one of us that we need to think about. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Idolatry is such a hard one. We all are guilty at some point of putting things higher than God and not placing God as a priority in our life. Sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Do we create divisions, knowingly or unknowingly? Envy, drunkenness, orgies. Now, all these things are um, uh, are not exhaustive, but they are clear indications of us living in the flesh, and we're called to put those things to death. So that's what we need to do. That is our obligation. But how do we do it? We cannot do it without the help of the Spirit. I met up with a friend recently who was really struggling with a particular sin, and he'd asked to meet up with me. Now, I knew that this guy was a Christian, and um, I'd seen the fruit of the Spirit kind of working out in his life. But he came to me, and he was so doubting his own sonship to God. And he, he talked about this, um, this, he told me basically what was going on, and um, um, I sat down with him, and we read through this passage, particularly the whole of Romans 8 together, we read through it. And earlier in Romans 8, it talks about the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So I said to him, in your most sober moment, when you don't have those temptations and those things distracting you, where's your allegiance? Where's your mind set? Have you set your mind on the flesh? I don't think he had. 
And so I pray that there will be an encouragement to some of you today. He had set his mind on the Spirit, partly because he had come to me and he wanted to pray about this and figure this out. So he had set his mind on the Spirit. And that is how we're able to then put sin to death, by setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. Where is your allegiance to? So that is how we do it. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, more of a personal story. Um, for a, a number of years, from the age of probably about 13, I really wrestled with pornography. Um, I'll just be honest with you about that. And there was, there was one particularly bad day when I, it, was just, it was a very shameful moment, a shameful day, and I sensed the Spirit prompting me to pray, and that's the last thing I wanted to do in that moment. So I sensed the Spirit encouraging me to pray, and so I, I did, purely out of, you know, I even said to God, this is the last thing I want to do, but I will do it. So I got on my knees and I prayed. And since then, I've kind of had this mindset shift of, in any moment of temptation, in any moment of sin, make my primary response prayer and I cannot help but look back over the last few years and see the incredible way that God has um, been blessing and answering those prayers. The times of struggling growing shorter and shorter and further and further between and the times of living a full life in the Spirit growing longer and longer and more and more glorious. We have to do this in the power of the Spirit. This is why he says, by the Spirit we're able to cry out, Abba, Father. And lastly, why do we do it? because we've made, been made into sons and daughters. Honestly, there is no greater privilege than to be a son or a daughter of God. We've been looking at this idea of sanctification over the, the last few weeks. And in, in the story of redemption, you could say that there's justification, that because Jesus died for our sins, we become justified. There's sanctification, there's this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change us and transform us. But at the end of all that, there is adoption to sonship. And that is the greatest privilege of being a Christian, is to be adopted as sons and daughters of God the Most High. David, the man after God's heart, said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in your house than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. But the promise isn't even a doorkeeper. The promise is to be a son. Just like at the start, we were talking about that slave who um, was, was taken home and asked to be a son. So we are chosen and asked to be sons and daughters of God Most High. I wonder as well if there's some people in here who actually are feeling like life is too painful to really resonate with this. And there's something that's going on that maybe is, is stopping you connect with this in one way or another. And my encouragement to that person would be just to persevere. And I know it sounds like a cop-out, but there is so much value in persevering. In fact, God is not even ignorant to our pain, that thing that is going on right now, because he joined us in our sufferings. So I encourage you to press on. Paul talks about faith as a race, that we press on to win the goal, to win the prize. And just to give you a foretaste of what's to come in verse 18, 
It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. I really enjoyed sometimes just meditating on some of these passages and how beautiful and glorious they are. And if that's all you do today, if that's the only response that you take away from this, fantastic. That's great. But press on. Keep going. My granny once said to me, um, and she's kind of one of the, the heroes of my faith, I would say. She once said to me that when you're kind of holding on to your faith, sometimes you feel like you've got a stronghold over it and you're, you're, you're gripping onto it and other times you feel like you're clinging on by the tips of your fingers. It doesn't matter if you're clinging on by the very tips of your fingers, just keep clinging on. A couple of weeks ago, um, I ran the Manchester Marathon and I knew I wouldn't be able to come and preach without talking about running in some way or another. It's a pretty big part of my life now. Um, But about three quarters of the way through, I just start slowing down and it's a slog and it hurts and I've got so little energy left in me. But the key thing with marathon running is not to stop. You You can slow down, you can even walk, but just don't stop. And so that would be another one of my encouragements to you this morning. Just don't stop. Slow down, walk if you have to, but don't stop. I'm going to invite the, uh, the band to come up now. And there's going to be a prayer team. I think it's over there. It used to be down the front, but it looks like it's going to be over there. Thanks, Kevin. I really encourage you to spend some time in prayer after this. Because it is by the Holy Spirit that we're able to pray, Abba, Father. It might be that there's not much that's necessarily resonated with you today, in which case that's okay, but still spend some time in prayer. There was a few weeks ago where I, um, I was at my church in Bristol and they called people for prayer. I don't think it was a particular thing in the sermon that resonated with me. In fact, I don't think there was anything particular that, uh, that day that I wanted prayer for, but I just, went, I just wanted prayer. I just wanted to come forward and spend some time with God. And again, if that's what you do today, great. Spend some time with God. He's your father. He's your perfect father. John Piper was once asked the question, is prayer a duty? I thought his his response was fantastic. He said, no, it's not a chore. It's not a duty in one sense. But in another sense, it's absolutely a duty. It's a duty in the sense that when you go scuba diving, you put an oxygen tank on your back because that's what gives you life. And so in the same way, prayer is a duty. It gives you life. I'm going to pray now. And then I encourage us all to spend a little bit of time in prayer, um, a few minutes, and then I'll give the band a nod and we'll start with worship. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the great privilege that it is to be sons and daughters of the Most High. I thank you for that privilege. I thank you for your son. I thank you for what he did on the cross. I thank you for the joy that it is to meditate on the glories of Christ and our inheritance. I pray, Father, that you're with us this morning as we spend some time praying about those, those things. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here who doesn't yet know you, who this promise might not be reality for yet, I pray, Lord, that today will just be a foretaste of... the the wonder that it is to know you and and be part of your family. And I pray, Lord, that that person will, uh, yeah, seek you. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.